Go ahead and flip your Bibles open to Romans 15, and we're going to look at the rest of chapter 15, so we'll be in verses 14 through 33, and uh, let's read that, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll go to work with it. Romans chapter 15, verse 14, these are the words of God. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition, there's our word, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you the reason being his preaching around the world. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have no longer for many years, uh, excuse me, I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from, Macedon from Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father in God, we are grateful to you that we've been brought together by the blood of Christ our Lord. And we, we ask today that you would help us to understand your words so that we can be obedient to your word. Uh, open our hearts and our minds to receive what your spirit may have for us today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, our message today is called Gospel Ambition, and we now come to the basically the, the last part of the book of Romans. Paul's grand letter to the Christians who were in Rome, the capital of the world at the time. And, and while Paul, of course, has basically finished up his major expositions and his major doctrinal considerations, um, his points of consideration, I should say, he now makes, he, he takes a minute to essentially explain what he has done and then what he is continuing to do by rooting his vocation in the scriptures. Paul has a sense of vocation. He knows what he's called to do. He's a man of conviction as a result. He knows what he is called to do. 
Sometimes we forget that this was a letter that was written to real people, um, somewhat hunkered down in the most significant city in all of the known world at that time. I visited Rome in the summer of 2009. Do I have that date right, Mary? I can't remember. I think so. 2009, uh, after I finished seminary, our group went to Rome and uh, toured the city. Some hopped on a train and went up to, to, to Venice, uh, or Florence, I should say, where the statue of David is, the famous statue. Uh, I decided I wanted to stay in Rome another day. There was too much to do. And it's fascinating as you go around the city because you have ancient architecture meeting modern architecture. And it's a, a really, it's mind-blowing. You go down by the Colosseum and you can see the Ark of Constantine. You see the Ark of Titus. On the Ark of Titus, you have the menorah. Titus was known to be a part of conquering the Jews in AD 70. Uh, he came in after Vespasian, had to go back to Rome. Um, so Titus took over, and they're the ones that destroyed Jerusalem. Um, so you see all these things. You see the statues, the, the columns that are still there, uh, standing. When most of the building is gone, the columns are still there. And you, get, you just get a sense of history, and you get a sense of significance. And when you study history, and especially first century history, uh, and even first century B.C., second century B.C., when Rome really started to rule the world, it just becomes a fascinating uh, sort of reality check of just how insignificant I am in, in the world, it seems like, compared to everything else that's going on. And we visited uh, the place where they believe Peter and Paul were both held in prison, kind of down in this dungy cave. And uh, historically, it seems pretty accurate that that's where they were held before they were put to death. Um, Peter crucified upside down, Paul was beheaded. So it, it's a... It's a an incredible experience. So when we read Romans, though, sometimes we forget that it was, these are real people living in a real place of real significance. We're probably, we're talking probably about a hundred people in this church in a city of a million at the time, a small church like us, uh, who, who met from house to house, gathered when they could, that sort of thing. Um, our freedoms in terms of when we can gather are pretty extensive compared to them, but they were living in the most populous, um, most significant, I should say, city in the, in the known world at the time. And so suddenly you think these Christians are hunkered down, worshiping, singing, praying, um, preachings involved. They're trying to disciple the, the city of Rome. And suddenly this letter shows up and it's from the Apostle Paul. After, after weeks of writing it, it finally got to Rome and they get to read it. And he's already talked about in chapter one of his love for them. And then he comes back full, full circle here toward the end. And you really get the personal sense of the letter here. And he stresses here at the end that Rome will hopefully soon for him become a strategic base of operations so that he can go to Spain. And Spain, of course, was at that time part of the Roman Empire. So th this is really what he's saying here in this section. He's trying to he wants to get to Rome so that from Rome he can go to Spain. He has more preaching to do. So from the very beginning of the letter, Paul has emphasized that he has a calling, and his calling is to be a pioneer, a trailblazer of sorts, to go into the hard places where not a single Christian exists, or if there are, there's one out of thousands. That's his mission. He, that's what God has called him to do, and he knows it. He knows that's what he's supposed to be doing, so he's, he's all, all about it. He, he loves going to the hard places 
where Christ has not been named. The heart of Paul's gospel preaching was the good news that the one true God of Israel has established his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Savior of the world. And that, instead of worshiping the multiplicity of pagan deities who are worthless and impotent, men and women and children can now repent of their idolatry, be brought forth into this kingdom of justice, peace, and righteousness and hope, and they can be forgiven of their sin and set right with this newly crowned king. That's Paul's gospel. And, and God cho- has chosen, we know, and he has acted in history through Abraham and Israel, and now he has acted in Christ, and he has established his kingdom, a kingdom which cannot be shaken or moved or disturbed or even outpaced by the kingdoms of men. Now this, this understanding of the gospel gave Paul a gospel ambition. He was an ambitious man, someone who really desired to do really big things for the Lord, and he even then, it's like even the small things, like just being obedient in the day-to-day was something that should have been an ambitious desire too, and no doubt was for him. So, if I'm going to summarize the occasion of the letter, let me do that for you here. And next week, Lord willing, we'll be in, we'll just cover the whole chapter 16, and uh, it just becomes a very personal greeting thing, but there's things we can learn from it. Here's the occasion of the letter. If the Roman church is to support Paul and the work of the gospel, then they need to understand the inner workings of the gospel, why he's gone through all these big doctrines, like justification by faith alone and so on. Then they also need to understand the inner workings of the gospel because Paul himself is unashamed of preaching it and proclaiming it, and they need to be the same way. So think of Paul writing this letter, letter, explaining what he's doing and saying, guys, you need to be this way too. You need to have a gospel ambition. You need to see the kingdom of Christ for what it really is. You need to be a, all, all invested into it. Your families, your children, kids, you two, you two today. You need to be thinking about the kingdom of God on the forefront of your mind and all of your activities, whether you're reading and writing or doing math, math, whatever, drawing a wonderful picture. Think about the kingdom of God and how you're serving him. So Paul is simply getting on the same page as they are. So let's summarize our passage. I'm not going to go through every one. It's too big of a passage, but I just want to kind of give you a a bird's eye view here. He says in verse 14, he starts by saying that he's satisfied and excited about the church in Rome because they are chock full of goodness and knowledge. And on top of that, they understand how to instruct and counsel one another. These are good marks of a church. People who instruct one another when necessary, who exhort one another, who are um, counseling, that's, that's where we get the nothetic counseling word from. They're instructing, they're counseling, they're giving um, goodness and knowledge, and they're dispensing that to each other. And what he's saying is, <laughs> they weren't a disheveled mess like the Corinthian church, where they had a whole bunch of um, sexual immorality problems and other things that he had to sort through. He's not writing to correct their bad behavior. They, they, thankfully, they were spared of that in the Roman church. Um, rather, as an apostle, He's going into uncharted territory in order to preach Christ, and he desires for this church, this local church, for them to partner with him in this endeavor. So, that, so they needed to know where he was coming from, both theologically and philosophically. So when you read this letter, just he's trying to get on the same page as they are, and vice versa. Look at verses 15 and 16. 
But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Uh, very boldly is sort of an understatement of some of the things he said. Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service, note that, of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Priestly language. Using cultic, and by cultic I don't mean weird cult. Cultic in its truest sense just means worship and service, liturgy, physical acts of, of obedience like the temple system and so on. So using cultic language, which again, it is no doubt reminiscent of the temple sacrifices that Paul as a Jew would have been obviously very familiar with. But using that language, Paul says he acts like a priest. He's a priest of God in that he goes into the Gentile world to scoop up converts, to baptize them and disciple them, and he lays them in front of the Lord, sanctifying them, that means to be set apart, sanctifying them by the Holy Spirit. When Paul the Jewish apostle, is in a, a, we can call him an apologist and a philosopher as well, when he goes into the world, Paul goes in to the world suffering, praying, celebrating, traveling, weeping, suffering some more, making tents so that he can get by financially, and so on. And he does it in order to magnify the message that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Risking his own life, Paul, without any special accoutrements, Paul is focused. And this is, this is somewhat unconventional thing for a, for a Jew to, to be doing. It's unconventional. And the only person really to ever do this was Jesus himself. So Paul's in good company. Jesus pulled his disciples together, and what did they do? Did they sit in a classroom 24-7? No. They went forth into the world, and discipleship was on-the-ground training. You know, here, here come with me. We're going to go to the abortion mill. <laughs> here, here, come to me. Come to me. We're going to go, and we're going to go to the Pride event in D.C. That's discipleship. We're going to go together, and we're going to do this, and we're going to honor Jesus along the way. And that's what Paul had essentially been doing. Remember when he went to Philippi? He shows up in the book of Acts. He finds Lydia. She's a, a rich woman, a businessman, a, a business woman. And uh, they show up, and there's people down by the river gathering there. Assumingly, uh, there were, some of them were Jews doing, practicing their cleansing protocols in the river. And he starts a church. And he gets the disciples together, the people who are there, and says, okay, this is how we need to function. And so Paul's always thinking in terms of discipleship and those types of things, just like Jesus, our master, who, who did the same thing. So the Gentiles, these are the nations, need to be brought into the fold, and Paul views himself as a priest to the Gentiles, a missionary to the nations. And according to verse 17, he's proud of it because Christ has worked in and through him. It's okay to be proud of the work you do for the kingdom. It's okay to be excited about those things. Just remember it's not about you or me, right? He says in verse 18 something similar to what he said in the church in Corinth. He says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except Christ crucified, he says to the Corinthians. But here he says, Except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. God has done the work, he says. God is doing the work. It's all for his glory. And God uses means. Who are the means? Us. 
And this has happened, he says, by word and deed, by powers and signs and wonders, which is uh, Hebrew language from the Old Testament. Remember the signs and wonders that took place with Moses and his showdown with the magicians of, of Pharaoh. All of these wonderful things that God had done through him, ultimately credited to the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 19. So from Jerusalem, if you think, about, think visually on a map, from Jerusalem all the way around the Mediterranean Sea, all the way up to Syria, all the Sicilia, uh, or Cilicia, I should say, Cappadocia, Galatia, up to Macedonia and further, sort of this arc from the Middle East around the Mediterranean, or this way, if from your angle, <laughs> looking at me. Um, Paul, through all of these cities, through all these trials, for many years, fulfilled, he says, the ministry of the gospel. He's, he's done what he set out to do. In other words, the, the nations he says, have been reached. We have reached the nations. There's just a few more outlining provinces that need to be told. So Paul's gospel ambition, that's verse 20, his ambition is to preach Christ in places where Christ has not been preached. If you ever get a chance to read biographies, David Livingstone, George Mueller, other missionaries who have gone into the hard places, fascinating reading material. Going to places where Christ has not been named, that is hard. That is hard work. Many missionaries have died doing that. But that's Paul's ambition. And in verse 21, he pulls out a quote from the Greek text of Isaiah 52:15. It speaks of the nations being one to the Lord. Isaiah says, Those who have been, never been told of him will see, and those who never have heard will understand. In, in 1 Corinthians 3:10, Paul calls himself a wise master builder who builds on Christ the only sure foundation. And he warns against attempting to build on anything else. So if you could like pare down Paul's resume, here's what it would say at the very beginning. Paul, you might say, is a kingdom builder in untouched territory. That's how he feel, views himself. He's a kingdom builder in untouched territory. And even today, there are unreached people groups places where the Bible, as much as the Bible has been translated into thousands of languages, there's still places in the world that have to be reached. He finishes the chapter by explaining that this was the reason that he hadn't been able to get to Rome, sort of a personal note. Yeah, I wanted to get to Rome, but I've sort of been busy out preaching Christ where he hasn't been named. So he's been wanting to get to Rome. He hasn't been able to. This is the reason why. The small church presumably was built right after Pentecost. Now, if you go in the early in the book of Acts, you, you see the story of Pentecost. The nations, many of them were there. Jewish people coming to Jerusalem for that feast. And uh, Peter was preaching. And apparently some converts took off back to Rome, which was where their home was, and they had started a church. So Paul, he had spent his time going to remote places, though the entire time he had longed to be with them. And in verse 24, he says that he wants to see the Roman church in passing on his way up, to, up north to Spain. And, he, and not only to be helped by them, he's assuming that they'll help him financially, but he also wants to enjoy their company. See, you, you can, when you read, play, a lot of people love going to Romans 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and all the way up into 8 and 9 and and even 10 and 11, but then the rest of the letter becomes, oh, well, it's just personal stuff. But I think we can learn something from this. We can learn something about Paul's affection for the people that he was serving. 
we can learn about connectivity with other people and how, how we labor alongside of them, something we'll talk about in a minute. But you can sense his affection for them and his love for them. At the moment, however, verse 25, Jerusalem has need. We know from Acts, the book of Acts that a famine had, and political tension had been happening in Jerusalem. So the Jewish Christians there needed aid. Paul was basically raising money for them. Sort of a, the original GoFundMe campaign for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Anyway, he got money from Macedonia. The churches in Macedonia, you'll recognize them. Thessalonica was one. Philippi was another. Um, Berea was another. Uh, also the region of Achaia. Corinth was there. So he's getting money. Presumably, he has quite a backpack full of, of funds. And he's taking the funds to Jerusalem by himself. He may have some help along, along the way, but he himself has gathered this money. He's taking it back to Jerusalem. So that, that's, imagine you trying to just get to California by foot. You, you're trying to get there. Of course, there, there were some boats taking the Mediterranean. You could take some shortcuts. But this is, this is Paul's mission. This is his objective. And, and by the way, Paul didn't know it at the time when he was writing this letter to, to Rome. But we know from Acts that his trip to Jerusalem would nearly cost him his life. So it's kind of interesting reading this. Hey, I got to go to take money to Jerusalem, but then I'm going to get to Rome, and then I'm going to go to Spain. He had no idea what was to come. He almost lost his life just getting back to Jerusalem. And it took him years not weeks like he thought when he wrote this letter. It took him years to eventually get to Rome, going before Felix, going before the governors, appealing to Caesar, a Roman citizen. I, I, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. He's trying to get to Rome, but he's tripped up because of all these issues, and that's most of the latter half of the book of Acts tells us about that. So he's trying to get to, to Jerusalem, would nearly lose his life, wants to get to Rome, but it would take him years after writing this letter to get there. And eventually, we don't know if he ever got to Spain. Some people think he might have, but we also know that he ended up in Rome where he would die. Nero himself putting him to death. Well, not himself, but Nero's instructions. Now, the largely Gentile Christians who had donated for this GoFundMe project, they were happy to do it, he says, because, note this, they came into the kingdom sharing the spiritual blessings of the Jewish Christians. So, to serve them in this way is no big deal. Think about it. You're a Gentile brought into the kingdom, and you owe all the spiritual blessings to the Jewish Christians because it was through Abraham that all these blessings, all the promises, all the covenants, he's already talked about this in Romans 9, 10, and 11, all of that came in. So for you who share in that, to give money for this project is really not that big of a deal he says now that's sort of to say this real quick sort of as an aside gratitude should drive our generosity if you find yourself not feeling very generous it may be because you don't have a whole lot of gratitude in your heart so think of it this way gratitude should drive your generosity but the doctrine of justification by faith is what should drive our gratitude do you see the connection? So gen generosity should be driven by gratitude. 
Justification by faith alone should then drive our gratitude. In other words, when you know who you are in Christ, you are grateful and you realize that nothing you have is yours, it was given to you, and then you can give it to others. So that's an important point I think Paul emphasizes here. So he ends this chapter with a request for prayer that is twofold. Here's his prayer request to the Roman Christians. One, Jewish non-Christians hated Paul and would bitterly resent Paul showing up again. He's going back to Jerusalem. Things are going to get bad. The religious leaders there hated him. They viewed him as a traitor, a blaspheming apostate. That's what they thought of Paul. You were on our side, Saul, when you were persecuting Christians, but then you adopted Christ, or Christ adopted you, right? That's how we really see it. And then you became public enemy number one. Paul was hated by the Jewish non-Christians, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He was hated. So he's asking for prayer as he goes. Second prayer request. There may be Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem who may not find the Gentile money acceptable. There was still tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Hence the letter of Romans and him sorting that out. That's his prayer request at the end. It's an interesting prayer request. Yeah, pray for the people who hate me that they don't kill me. And pray that the money I'm raising will be received by the people who may be skeptical of it. Interesting set of prayer requests. And look at the very last verse of this chapter. He closes it out by saying, May the God of peace, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Peace. Out of all the things that go on in the world, peace is what's needed more than anything. Peace between Christians, peace between pagans. They need the peace of Christ, the Prince of Peace. Now, as we close out our study of Romans next week, Lord willing, one thing you'll notice is that Paul is very much connected to people that he's never actually met. He loves these people. He's never even really met them. Now, he knows he has friends in ministry, as we'll see Priscilla and Aquila and others. He has friends um, in ministry. You think of Phoebe, and he goes on in the rest of the list. Um, He has friends in ministry, and he has partners who know some of the Roman, Roman Christians, but he himself doesn't really know them. At least he hasn't met them. Imagine writing a letter to people you've never met. What would you say? Well, he knew some things were going on. He knew that Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome, so half the church was sent away. They ended up coming back when Nero became emperor, before Nero became a nut job, which he did. But here's Paul writing to people he's never met. The early church had built quite a network of people who worked together under Caesar's nose, trying to grow and expand the kingdom of God into every area, every area of life. Now, we think we have communication problems. Like, the forefront of our communication problems is, well, we better use signals so that the NSA doesn't get what we're saying. <laughs> right? Here are some communication problems. No cell phones, not even a phone booth, trying to get a message across thousands of miles, Meeting in homes secretly because if they find out, they might kill you. The only people who know that today are places in Pakistan, Afghanistan, China. We don't know what that's like. That's communication problems, right? But they had built a network of people. 
carrying messages back and forth to all these churches all across the Mediterranean, all over the place, modern-day Turkey and Greece and places like that, all the way into Rome and, and, and Italy. It's amazing, the connections. We'll see that next week. Um, so earmark that for later. But just know that in his collaborative efforts, Paul has always hastened to emphasize several things, not least, of course, being the gospel itself, the foundation of all things. Paul is unashamed of and thus driven by the gospel. He says at the very beginning, I am unashamed of the gospel. He's driven by it. He's unashamed by it. And guess what? So should we. We too must be unashamed of the gospel and thus driven by the gospel. I think about when we went to the Pride event a few weeks ago. And, and my goodness, just idolatry on display. And that's, you have an option. Are you going to be ashamed of the gospel or are you going to proclaim it? Very real times. You can say all, all, up, all up and down, I'm unashamed of the gospel. Absolutely, I think it's great. It's the good news of Christ. He is Lord. I'm unashamed of it. But what happens when you start putting it to the test? When you start dealing with things like statism and idolatry and abortion and all of these issues? Are you going to remain unashamed of it then? Or are you just going to be unashamed of it when it's convenient on a Sunday morning? Because I think the church has, has an unashamed, shamed gospel. I think, we're, I think we're nervous about seeing Christ proclaimed in certain places. Consider Paul for a moment. The man himself went through incredible suffering, an incredible amount of suffering. Just read 2 Corinthians. He lists it all the time. Shipwrecked. All these, all these different things. Nearly lost his life. And he did it all for the sake of the gospel. He endured so much hardship in his life. So much hardship. Probably missing several meals because he just either didn't have the money or, or the food was in short supply. A man who has sacrificed a lot. And you read a letter like this and you think, wow, he's a brilliant man. Clearly he's a student of theology and a philosophy. I mean, well-trained Jewish mind. And yet, Paul moved in terms of the will of God. Always moved in terms of the will of God. From front to back, top to bottom. He was always considering the will of God. Remember the catechism, kids. What is, how do we, what is the duty that God requires of us? To what? Obey his revealed will. That's the Apostle Paul. God had ordained Paul to a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of preaching. What a life. What a life. The thing, though, that we're not trying to elevate Paul here. We're trying to magnify Christ in Paul. Follow me as I follow Christ, he says. But the thing that fueled and sustained his drive to preach among the, na- the Gentile nations was no doubt, this is my view, I think I can prove it biblically, but I think the thing that drove him to such ambition was his rediscovery of the ancient Hebrew text that emphasized God's plan to win the nations. Why else would he quote Isaiah 52.15 here? Why else would he go back and look at the, look at the Old Testament? Remember, Paul, when he converted, had to sort of take, take a time out, almost like a voluntary sequestered time, to kind of go back and realize, aha, the Hebrew Bible that I had proclaimed did talk of Jesus. It was about him. And so he's sort of reading the Old Testament with new eyes now. After he was converted, he had to go back, and no doubt he rediscovered these texts which speak of this. He saw what Isaiah had said, and this shaped his deep sense of vocation to preach and build in hard places. And that's simply what apostles do. 
apostolos in Greek just simply means a sent one. Remember when Jesus breathed on the disciples in the book of John, he breathed on them, he says, as, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Breathing, anointing with the Holy Spirit, sending them out, making them apostles. See, many of his Jewish counterparts at the time had lost sight of God's plan to win the nations through them. Okay, it's repeatedly in the Old Testament we find the prophets of old calling Israel back to repentance and back to their calling to be a light to the nations. Now, a quick word here because I think a lot of Christians miss this. Don't mistake in the Old Testament economy for being non-evangelistic. Yes, they built a temple. Yes, God dwelt in the temple. The nations were to come there. But it was still a very, Judaism in terms of pre-Christ history was a very evangelistic religion. They wanted the nations to come and worship God. Now, some of them lost sight of that. That's why Jesus flips over the tables. You remember that in the temple? He wasn't mad that they were exchanging money. No doubt that was part of it. He was actually upset because they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. They had become a stumbling block to the Gentiles. And Jesus was furious about it. He says, my, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for what? The nations. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Let me tell you what that's about. Isaiah 2 Zion is the Christian church. The church is to be lifted up. The nations are to come to the church and ask for wisdom. And they will learn peace. They will learn how not to have war anymore. But I'm telling you right now, until the church repents of all of our apathy, all of our pietism, all of our complete disregard for just preaching the gospel and not bringing the gospel of the kingdom into the hard places, until we repent of that, we will not be the head, we will be the tail. We will not be the exalted mountain where people come to the church because there's light emanating there, we won't do it until we repent of it. We just won't. But that's what this text is about. There will be a time when the church will be brought up and elevated as a mountain, and the nations will come and say, Christians, how are we supposed to do this? But until we repent, we won't. By the way, the tail and head language is from Deuteronomy 28. It's a curse. When Christians find themselves as the tail of a culture, it's because we've disobeyed and we have a lot more repentance to do. Micah 4 says the very same thing. It's the same prophecy. Micah chapter 4. Listen to Isaiah 49, 6. Just one verse. Very simple verse. God says, It is too... Is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Listen to this. I will... I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What about Isaiah 60, verse 3? And nations shall come to your light 
and kings to the brightness of your rising. When Jesus walked around Israel and he said that he was the light of the world, he's using Isaiah to put forth a prophetic imagery to the fact that he is drawing the world unto himself. He is the light of the world. He is exactly who Isaiah had prophesied. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus said, John 12, will draw all people to myself. See, Paul gets this. Paul knew the Old Testament quite well. He understand after his conversion, um, he, he understood after his conversion that God had opened up the door to the nations in this new spectacular way through the preaching of the gospel. To his fellow Jews, guess what? The cross was a stumbling block. It was a completely ridiculous postulation. You worship a Messiah who was put on a cross. That's some Messiah. That's what Paul himself had thought. To the Gentile nations, it was folly. It was a foolish fairy tale. What? Risen from the dead? Are you kidding me? But that's the beauty of the gospel itself. As Steve read in in 1 Corinthians 1, it's the foolishness of God that is wiser than the wisdom of men. It's the weakness of God that is stronger than the strong, stronger than all men. See, it's, it's nothing to fear. The gospel seemingly being ridiculous in the eyes of unbelievers, it's nothing to fear. It's nothing. You, there should be no hint of trepidation in your heart other than honoring God. There should be no trepidation to want to share the gospel, to talk about the kingdom, to put the kingdom in terms of the social order we find around us, to deal with injustice, to deal with all of these issues that we see. So it's not a bug, it's a feature of the kingdom. Now, despite all the adversity, all the suffering, all this hardship, all the ridicule, all the nonsense that Paul had to endure, despite all of that, Paul stood firm on the proclamation that Jesus is Lord of the world. And should we? Gospel ambition is what should drive every decision we make. Gospel ambition is what ought to drive every single decision. So many people are driven by so many different things. You want a list? I have one. Thanks for asking. Money. Money. Not that earning money and using it for the kingdom is wrong. It's not. We should be. We need more billionaire Christians. A lot of them. We need to get it out of the hands of the pagans. Uh, Out of the hands of Bezos and others and not by theft but by building we need more Christian billionaires but people are driven by money in an idolatrous way some people are driven by status I need people to look at me as being super important a lot of people are driven by that some are driven by security oh Lord just please make everything safe now remember uh uh, uh, I'm going to misquote this. Maybe you'll remember, Eli, the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, um, how he's not safe, but he's good. I think that's the quote from Lewis. Um, Jesus is not safe. He's dangerous. He will turn your idols inside out and rip them apart. And that's a good thing. But some people are driven by security. They don't ever take risks for the sake of the gospel. They just want security and comfort. Comfort being another one. Some are, some are idealists. They, their heads are in the clouds and they just live an ideal vision of what they think things should be like, even though reality is completely different. And they might want to expect certain things and maybe even good things, but it never really comes around. And so on. So these idols, these idols promise to give us our deepest desires, all while disorienting our sensibilities and distracting us from our vocations. 
Think of the smartphone and what it's done to moms that are home, to dads who are home. Think of what it has done. Think about all of the idolatries that we have in our society that distract us. It disorients our sensibilities so we can't discern things. It distracts us from the calling of what we're supposed to be doing. So many Christians lack gospel ambition in their lives. They spend too much time with their head in the clouds, and thus they fail at the tasks that are right in front of them. They are, they're, they're, some are pietists who keep certain things holy while other things are profane, right? Calling, calling things like the abolition of abortion and the megalithic state as profane. <laughs> no, that's a holy calling. See, when you give yourself over to an ambition that is not driven by the Lordship of Christ and the assurance that Jesus is governing every single waking moment, that's when the idol becomes appealing to you, and that's when you're moving in terms of something other than the kingdom. Proverbs 21, excuse me, Proverbs 19:21 reads, Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many make plans, right? We all make plans. We all have tons of plans we like to make, but it's the Lord who makes them stand. See, our plans are our plans. Paul had a lot of plans, and things didn't end up going the way he thought, but our plans are our plans, and sometimes we discover, <laughs> sometimes we discover that actually they're really God's plans too. Paul had plans. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to drop off the funds for the Jewish Christians there, the saints there. He wanted to visit Rome for a while then go all the way up to Spain. He wanted to do these things. He wanted to preach Christ wherever and anywhere that Christ had not been named. He wanted to go. He was driven by that. And yet it wasn't entirely God's will. Some of us have plans that are just not God's will. So suck it up, buttercup. Be done with it. Move on. Try something else. Try something else that's obedient. But it may not be what God wants from you. This shouldn't, by the way, stifle our plan making and nor should it lead us into a discussion about karma or fate. <laughs> well, it just, karma's going to come back and get me. I don't know who karma is, but I've never seen him. <laughs> um, no, when, when God's will, that when we're following God's will, sometimes it's just trying something and failing and that's okay. And then we have to move on to something else. Certainly that's what Paul had to endure. So rather than stifling our plan making, we are attempting to serve Christ and his kingdom every single day. And we take baby steps, by the way. We take baby steps exploring what, what it is Jesus might have us to do. And the reason, and this is where I want to close it up here. And the reason that we do that is because we are all priests. We're all priests. Paul saw his calling as a priestly calling. The nations are ours for the taking. Do you believe it? Okay. I'm going to say this. Fauquier County is ours for the taking. It is. Taking it for Jesus Christ in his kingdom. It is. As we seek to preach all of Christ for all of life, as we seek to equip men, women, and children in this county to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life, we do so knowing that, guess what? Some of our plans will not work. Some things we attempt will just not work. Some of them will. Some of them will. But we do so as priests with a calling under God. We are cultic representatives of Christ whose aim is to get others to worship and serve King Jesus. And as such, we do not worry ourselves to death 
whether something will work and, or not. Some people look at the abolition of abortion and say it's just utterly impossible. What could I possibly do? What could I possibly do to end the slaughter of four to 5,000 babies every single day? What could you do? Well, you can hold a sign, you can write an article, you can send a text, you can preach, you can do something, right? We can all work toward that end, but if you lose sight of that calling of being a priest, you'll just get swallowed up in the, oh, I can't do anything about anything. And then you'll become numb, and then you'll excuse it by pietism, and, that's, and then guess what? You'll be locked in your prayer closet for the rest of your life, and you will do nothing for the sake of the kingdom. And that's what most Christians are doing today. So we're not pragmatists. We don't do things because it might work. We do things because we're followers and priests of Jesus Christ, which is to say, friends, that your life matters. Your life matters. What you do with your life matters. To quote R.C. Sproul, right now counts for eternity. Right now counts for eternity. And what God has done is made you in His image for the purpose of gospel ambition. And there are far too many Christians lazily walking around without purpose in their life. Just no purpose. And thus they have no ambition. And the reason so many Christians happily went along with government quarantine mandates is because they've been quarantining from the world with no ambition all of their lives. There are those who are excited about being entertained in church and thus they have no need to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. And our lives, our lives are given. Your life has been given to you. Our lives have been given to us to be stewarded properly so that we can expend our energies with laser-like focus on the kingdom through gospel ambition. So don't waste it. Renew your minds. Be anchored in Christ. Have some passion and zeal for the kingdom for crying out loud. That's our calling. So if you if you're sort of feel like you're just, I'm in a dry place, well then go jump in the daggone lake for crying out loud. Why? We have to have a gospel ambition. It should fuel us. It should fuel us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and thank you for what you have done in, in the Apostle Paul. And I know that Someday, sitting back and having a conversation with him in the new heavens and new earth, we might be slightly intimidated by him, though probably not. I know one thing Paul would say is, it's not me, it's Christ. And, and Lord, I, I ask and pray that you would stir us up here as a community. Um, stir up our church, Lord, for gospel ambition. Um, we all go through seasons of, of acting like you are somehow distant from us when it was just us who ignored you. We all go through seasons where we're not opening our, our Bibles. We're not praying like we probably should be. We, 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 not even praying like we should be, praying like we get to. We go through seasons of busyness with raising children and going to work and all of these things, Lord. And I, I just pray that you would anchor us, anchor us with that gospel ambition, Lord, that it would drive us into everything. That we wouldn't be lazy, that we wouldn't be caught flat-footed, but that we would be eager 
to see Christ magnified in this world and in our county. So would you help us to do that? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.